Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, Judges chapters 17 and 18. We uh, had just begun our study last time of the so-called appendices of the book of Judges that are chapters 17 through the end of the book. And from a chronological standpoint, these chapters belong really at the beginning of the book of Judges. Probably around the time of the first judge of Israel, Othniel. Uh, And the purpose of the chapters following the story of Samson is to give us a better understanding of the condition of the tribes of Israel generally a few years or decades following Joshua's death. It also helps us understand the migration of the tribe of Dan out of their officially allotted territory into another one of their own choosing up near the Lebanese border region, as a matter of fact. Um, Got it pointed out right here on the map right up in this area. You see here, this is the uh, Sea of Galilee here, and you see how much further north. This is where Dan relocated. Now, this movement is really what led to their nearly complete abandonment of the worship of Jehovah. And the consequences of their rebellious actions and, and, and rather extreme apostasy led to yet another eventual migration of Dan to avoid their own extinction. Some of it forced by the Assyrians, the Assyrians, and some of it was a means of escape from foreign powers. And they moved to northern Africa to where the bulk of the known remnants of Dan live today. Now, there are three observations that we gained from the first four verses of Judges 17, which which gives us insight into what I would call the spiritual climate of of the times. First is how quickly religious and cultural syncretism overtook the tribes of Israel. And undoubtedly this was uneven. Some tribes easily abandoned the law of Moses. Others made more of an effort to continue to adhere to it. But all 12 tribes, and Levi in in addition, were heavily influenced by the many Canaanites who remained in the promised land and the Hebrews' propensity to make allies and friends of them rather than driving them out or eradicating them, per God's instructions, as one would termites infesting a house. The syncretism I speak of simply means primarily a mixing of religious beliefs, and in this case, the Hebrew with the Canaanite Babylon mystery religions. It's amazing how quickly this can happen. And how quickly a society, even one that was created and set apart for God, how quickly it can adopt new ways and forget where they came from. 
forget who they owe their existence to. Okay. Invariably, there's, there's a reason for this. It doesn't just happen on its own. It can be for economic purposes. It can be because of a desire to end conflict and have peace. Or simply because the newer ways look more attractive to the, at least to the newest generation right, than the older ways that were practiced by their parents. Don't think that political correctness and the need for each generation to part company with their parents' generation is a modern thing. It began with Adam and Eve's kids. From the standpoint of the fallen human condition, it is completely natural to mix or dilute our religious beliefs with whatever seems expedient and popular. After a short time then, that new platform of beliefs and behaviors becomes the new standard. And few people even question it. Those of you who have followed Torah class for for a while know of my love for the church, but also my criticism and sadness at how far we have gone astray from the principles and teachings of Messiah Yeshua, the Torah he taught from and the Bible in general. As the Israelites of the time of the judges sought comfort and prosperity and spiritual independence above all else, so do we have that same tendency. The motto of the era of the judges is very well stated in these latter chapters of the book of Judges, and it is, every man did what was right in his own eyes. The Christian motto today is, I know what the Bible says, but I believe what I believe. Those are the same words with exactly the same meaning just spoken 3,000 years apart. Why is it that we can instantly see how wrong the Israelites were but were so blind to our own condition? The second observation I'd like to make about the story of Micha as an example of the general condition of Israel is that era the laws of Moses were being violated on just a regular basis it was common now we can easily identify a whole number of direct trespasses against the Lord's commandments by Micha Micha stole money from his mother in doing so failed to honor his parents in this case his mother obviously he worshipped other gods and he made an image of Jehovah. So there's four, right off the bat. Third, is that Micah's mother, third observation is that Micah's mother showed the same ambivalence as did her son towards God's commandments by first vowing to donate this, the, the recovered 1,100 pieces of silver to God but instead keeping the bulk of it for herself and then using less than 20% of it to honor God. But even that 
was used in a perverted way by giving those 200 pieces of silver back to her thieving son so he could go and have an image of the Lord manufactured by a silversmith. This idol would then be used in an unauthorized manner by buying down to it as an object of worship, placing it in an unauthorized sanctuary, and then officiated over by an unauthorized non-Levite priest, Mika's son. Let's Let's reread a portion of chapter 17 in Judges. Judges chapter 17. Going to start reading at verse, uh, I think we'll go ahead with 7, which is page 291, and go on to the end. <clears throat> there was a young man from Bethlehem in Yehuda, from the family of Yehuda, who was a Levi, a Levite. He had been staying in Bethlehem, and, but he, he left there to find another place to live, and came to the hills of Ephraim, where eventually he made his house, uh, way to the house of Micha. And Micha asked him, where are you coming from? And he answered, I'm a levy from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to live. And Micah replied, Stay with me. Be a father and a Kohen, a priest for me. I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year in addition to your clothing and food. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. And after Micah consecrated the Levite, the young man became his priest and stayed there in Micah's house. And Micah said, Now I know that Adonai will treat me well, because I have a Levite for a priest. Well, things were back to normal in Micah's house. His mother lifted the curse against her son, and their home sanctuary was now operating with that beautiful new silver image of God at its center. They just felt great about all this. Well, a traveler shows up at Micah's house, a young man from the territory of Judah. Now, a kind of confusing identification of this young man is given to us. It says he's from the family of Judah, but that he's a Levite. And for now, his name remains anonymous to us. Now, while there can be some small doubts about it, Probably the man is actually fully a Levite. It's only that he was sojourning in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in the territory of Judah, and probably living within, with a family of Judahites. Now here's the thing. We know that the tribe of Levi was given 48 cities that were evenly distributed throughout the 12 tribal territories, as a place for them to live and carry out their religious duties. However, Beit Lehem was not one of those places. It was not a Levitical city. The extended reference to the city as Beit Lehem of Judah is necessary because there were several Beit Lehems scattered all around the Promised Land. This one, the subject in this story, This one is the same one we're pretty familiar with as Yeshua's birthplace. Now this young Levite was but a temporary resident of Bethlehem. And this indicates the sad state of the priestly tribe at this time. They were not being properly supported by the twelve tribes as they should. And so many of them left 
their designated cities and sought to make a living somewhere else. But the Levites were equally at fault, being filled with apostasy and self-interest that trumped their calling and duty to serve only the God of Israel. Now, while it can't be stated with absolute certainty, there is really only one compelling reason for this young Levite to leave Bethlehem and the rabbis of old confirm it. The young man couldn't practice an idolatrous form of the Hebrew religion there in Bethlehem and sought a place where he could. See, Judah was perhaps the one territory and tribe who at least gave a concerted effort to stay near to the ways of the Lord. While by no means were they perfect in this, nor did every Judean clan or family feel the same way about it, we're going to see throughout the next several books of the Bible that the twelve tribes, that of all the twelve tribes, Judah was the least to be tempted in syncretism and the last to be conquered by foreigners as a, design, a divine consequence for their eventual rebellion against Jehovah. Now I've pointed out to you for some months and years, I suppose, that the division of loyalties within Israel that were between Judah and Ephraim as the leading dominant tribes began very early on. Almost as soon as the territory was divided up and allotted by Moses. We don't see a final falling out between those two until shortly after King Solomon's death, around 925 BC, which is about 400 years after the time of Joshua. But it was always inevitable that this hostile separation was going to occur. Thus we see that this young Levite leaves Judah, goes to the hills of where? Ephraim. A place that he knew was more receptive to his personal agenda and his beliefs. This traveler, this Levite traveler, would have stayed in several homes during his journey and undoubtedly some family or another finally directed him to Mekas. And staying in people's homes was a customary hospitality that was open to travelers in that day as only in the largest cities were there rooms for hire. Well, upon arriving at Mika's house, <clears throat> Mika discovers that the young man is a Levite and the young man says he's looking for a place to settle down and engage in something suitable to his heritage. So Mika offers this Levite employment and says, come and be a father and a priest for me. Now the part about being a father has nothing to do with him taking on the role of an elder or a parent. Okay. Rather, it's simply the term av or av, ava, abba can mean father in the sense that we typically think of fathers or it can also be a term of respect for somebody's wisdom, especially when that person is a potential spiritual advisor, which of course is the case we have here. Now what ought to raise our eyebrows and bring up some questions. Is this job opportunity he was offered to be a priest? That one the Levite 
jumped at, if you'll notice. Okay. Micah was looking to fire his son and replace him with a priest of more stature. Now, there is absolutely nothing right about what Micah or this Levite was doing. Although all priests are Levites, not all Levites can be priests. Only from the clan of Aaron, one of the three main subdivisions of um, Levi, could one rightfully even be a priest. All the other clans of Levi were assigned certain religious duties, but never as a priest. Thus we'll see the use of the terms Levite and priest in the Bible, but they denote two entirely different duties and lineages and status levels. This young man was not of the tribe of Aaron. He was an ordinary Levite. That he was looking to operate as a priest and that Micah offered it to him is ridiculous. Now how do I know that this Levite was not of the authorized priestly clan? I'll tell you next week. I know how to get you back here. But the insult and the injury to the word of God doesn't end there. Under some strange veil of authority, we're told in verse 12 that Micah consecrated the Levite to become a priest. Does this get pretty wild? Micah carried no such authority, of course, except that of age-old Middle Eastern customs and traditions. You know, let's remember that while they were in Egypt, Israel generally operated in the same way that we read here concerning Micah. It was standard operating procedure for the father of the house to more or less be the family priest, a duty which he usually passed along to his firstborn son at some point. Before Mount Sinai, during their exodus, Israel, remember, had no priesthood. But all religions of that day revolved around priests and rituals. So every Hebrew family had their own private family priest, so to speak. And the rituals they performed took place in the home. And it consisted of pretty much whatever they preferred. With some hazily defined set of cultural traditions to, to, as boundaries. Now we also read from the end of the book of Exodus and then onward that there was a real and ongoing power struggle within the Moses-led Hebrews to give up this standard family tradition and instead turn all the priestly duties over to one clan within one particular tribe, the clan of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. See, this reality about this constant struggle about this was very much at the bottom of the rebellion that Korah led when so many Israelites died as the leaders 
of the clans who really didn't like this new reality very much. Right? And if you remember, what happened was they came to the wilderness. They challenged Aaron and challenged Moses. They came to the wilderness tabernacle with their fire pans only to be burned up by the anger of God and then their families killed as the earth opened up beneath them. Does that bring some recollections? See, the Israelite fathers and firstborns generally didn't like this requirement of the law to give up that position of honor, that of being the family priest. And while apparently most of them complied, some did so only grudgingly and others just didn't at all. Thus, once Moses was dead and then Joshua after him, many Israelites simply turned right back to the old ways, which also most, uh, more closely aligned with, the, with what their Canaanite neighbors practiced. That's what we're seeing here with Micah and his private Beit Elohim, house of God. All right. Now that's going to be officiated over by this Levite man. Well, the last verse of chapter 17 says, Micah said, Now I know that Adonai will treat me well because I have a levy for a priest. This was not divine reality, of course. It was just ancient superstition. Micah honestly thought, that God was now obligated to bless him and his household merely because he had hired a Levite to become a private priest for his family sanctuary. This belief was not biblical faith. It was man-made doctrine. It was a well-accepted and popular doctrine. But you know, when it comes to Judeo-Christianity... What we believe and operate under cannot ever be about democracy or majority rules. Although, indeed, it seems that we kind of arrived at that point in our Christian and Jewish institutions, haven't we? This is also an excellent example of something I haven't talked about in a while. That the Bible is full of false statements and lies made by men. Now, before you have a heart attack over that, let me explain. We find many situations and characters in the Bible stories that are telling lies, operating on false assumptions, or rationalizing away their poor behavior. A classic one is the story of Balaam the sorcerer, who says all kinds of wacky things all right, about how the God of heaven must operate, and he's totally wrong. King David was infamous for rationalizing away some of his darkest moments. Okay? These words we just read of uh, Micah about how God would now especially bless him are another. Obviously, God does not bless us for breaking his commandments or perverting his rituals and observations despite our deepest sincerity. Okay. Thus, recorded scriptural words that are uttered by God or his designated prophets or his messengers are factual and accurate and they represent truth. 
But many of the words, as spoken by ordinary men, which are indeed recorded accurately in the Bible, are words that do not reflect divine truth or godly principle. Okay. Most of these cases, by the way, are obvious. But some just soon fly right over our heads if we don't diligently study the Torah of God to establish a firm foundation for our understanding. Now, I hope this is clear to you. And you don't think I'm telling you that the Bible is full of error, which it's not. But it is full of the statements and actions of men who are in error. Right, let's move on to Judges chapter 18. going to read it all. Judges chapter 18, page 292 in your complete Jewish Bible. At that time, there was no king in Israel, and it was also at that time that the tribe of Dan was looking for a place to claim ownership of and settle in, since they hadn't yet been given any land of their own among the tribes of Israel. The people of Dan sent, Dan sent five leading men from Sorah and Eshtol, representing their whole tribe, to spy out and explore the land. And they instructed them, go, explore the land. They came to the hills of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they stayed there. And while they were at Micah's house, they recognized the accent of the young man, the Levite. So they approached him and said, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is there for you here? And he answered, it's the, here's the arrangement that Micah has made with me. He pays me a wage. And so I serve as his priest. And they said to him, well then please ask God whether our journey will be successful. And the priest replied, don't worry, Adonai's with you on this journey. Well the five men left and they came to Laish. And they saw the people living there securely according to the customs of the Sidonim quietly and securely since no one in the land was exercising authority that might shame them in any respect moreover they were far away from the uh, Sidonim had no dealings with other peoples and when they returned to their kinsmen in Sorah and Eshtol they asked them what they had to report and they said let's go up and attack them we've seen the land it's excellent don't delay start moving go in take the land and when you go you're going to come to a people who feel safe. There's plenty of land. The place lacks nothing. It has everything there is on earth and God has given it to you. So from the tribe of Dan, 600 men equipped for war set out from there, from Zoranesh to Ol, and they went up and camped at uh, Kiryat Yarim in Judah, which is why that place is called Machanad Dan, Camp of Dan to this day. Actually, it's behind Kiryat Yarim. And from there they passed on into the hills of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Now the men who had gone out to spy out the land of Laish then said to their kinsmen, Are you aware that in these buildings there is a ritual vest? There's household gods and a carved image overlaid with silver? Decide what you ought to do. So they turned off the road and they went to the house of the young Levite, that is to say, Micah's house, and asked him how he was doing. And the 600 soldiers from Dan stayed at the gate, while the five who had spied out the land went in and took, took that idol that was overlaid with silver, the vest, and the household gods. 
the colon had stayed with the 600 soldiers by the gate. But when they went into Micah's house and took the silver-covered image, the vest, and the household gods, the colon asked them, What are you doing? And they replied, Be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Come with us. Be a father and a priest for us. Which is better? To be a priest for the house of one man or to be a priest to a whole tribe and family in Israel? Yeah, this made the Cohen feel very good. So he took the ritual vest, the household gods and the image and he went off with the people. So they turned and left with their children, cattle and belongings going ahead of them. Well, when they were a good distance from Micah's house, the men who lived in the houses near his got together and they overtook the people from Dan and they began shouting at them. And the people from Dan turned and they said to Micah, What's wrong with you? You've gathered such a crowd. And he answers, We've well, taken away my God, which I made, and gone off with my priest. What more have I got? How can you ask me what's wrong with you? And the men from Dan replied, You had best say no more to us. Because some of us might get angry and attack you. You could lose your life. And so might the others in your household. Well, then the people from Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were just too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took what Micah had made and his priest. Well, they came to Laish, to a quiet and trusting people, and they attacked them. They killed them. They burned down the city. No one came to rescue them because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with other peoples. This was in the valley near Beit Rehov. Then the people of Dan rebuilt the city and they settled there. They named the city Dan after Dan their ancestor who was born to Israel. Although the city had previously been called Laish. And the people of Dan set up the image for themselves. Yohanan the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests for the tribe of the people of Dan until the day of the exile from the land. Thus they erected for themselves Micah's idol which he had made, and it remained there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Well, here again are those important words to set the stage. There was no king in Israel. Now, we need to take this not as a Bible editor merely informing his readers that from a purely factual standpoint that Israel didn't have a king at that time, which of course was just common knowledge. Okay. Rather, the point is to explain why the things that were about to occur happened. You see, it's to explain that without a king, without a person of strong authority over them, men will always do as they please. Israel was in a state of spiritual anarchy. And the only restraints they placed upon themselves, since there was no strong or central human authority over them at that time, were mostly man-made philosophies and those behaviors and beliefs that most nations in that era considered moral. Now, as I stated early in today's lesson, the time frame of the, this event that we just read about Dan is placed very early 
and Dan's migration from central Canaan to the north up by the Lebanese border. Thus the story of chapter 18 occurred a couple hundred years before the time of Samson. And this further explains why Samson, who was of what tribe? Dan, tribe of Dan, didn't live in his own tribal territory, but rather lived inside or at least on the border of the tribal territory of Judah, even though the village he lived in consisted of Danites. Okay, now let me flesh that out just a little bit. It's not so simple as to think that within the territory of Judah that the only people who lived there were members of the tribe of Judah. Or that, let's say, in the territory of Asher, that the only people who lived there were members of the tribe of Asher, and then so on. Individuals, families, clans, moved into various territories for all kinds of reasons. There was no law of God that prohibited that. And generally speaking, provided that a family or a clan was of no bother uh, to, to the local tribal prince, and they didn't represent some, the beginning of some large migration um, of one clan or another belonging to a different tribe into a territory that wasn't theirs, it was allowed. And it happened very regularly. Verse 2 says that the reason Dan was on the move was that they hadn't been given any territory of their own among the tribes of Israel. Now this is a strange statement that is puzzling and contradictory because the other tribes were in place and before Israel even entered the promised land each tribe was given a territory by Moses. Later still Joshua set the boundaries, the size of each of these territorial allotments and now we're at a time with this story that's well after Joshua was dead and gone. However, it's one thing to be assigned territory and it's quite another to be able to wrest it away from the Canaanites that held it, which was the expectation that was laid upon every Israelite tribe. Now recall that while on the surface this allotment of territory seems like a modern day lottery we buy a ticket and if our number is selected we simply show up for our prize but that's not at all what's contemplated for Israel the land lottery of Moses served two purposes one was to divide up the land so that the tribes wouldn't be constantly squabbling among themselves over who should live where. And two, because they were each held responsible to deal with the Canaanites residing within the area they were given. In other words, each tribe was given a portion of Canaan and they were duty-bound to eject the Canaanites from it. The consequence for not doing that was that you lost some of your territory, or better, you simply never gained that territory. Or, as with Dan, you wind up with no territory at all. 
Dan was up against the Philistines, who proved to be the toughest enemy Israel would face over the long haul. And Dan finally just threw in the towel and moved to territory that had not been allotted to any of the Israelite tribes. Dan's view of it was they had not been given territory. And to them that probably meant that from a spiritual viewpoint God hadn't vanquished the Philistines ahead of Dan's army and thus the conclusion was that Jehovah hadn't given the territory over to them. By the way, that was a very typical ancient thought pattern regardless of what culture was involved or which God was worshipped. Well, the five men that had been sent out as scouts to look over some territory to the north that the leaders of Dan thought might be a good place to settle were from the cities of Sorah and Eshtaol. Okay, And these were the only two cities the tribe of Dan controlled at this time. And even then, those cities were on the borderlands of Judah. And most likely these two cities were actually within the territory of Judah. No doubt Judah, a very dominant and powerful tribe at this time, was being gracious to allow small and weak Dan this little bit of autonomy to give them some place to call their own. Now, obviously, Dan wasn't satisfied with the current state of affairs and sought to find another place for their people to call their own. Well, as the five scouts moved north, they arrived at the area in the hill country of Ephraim, where Micah lived. And they sought out hospitality on their journey. But this happenstance led to some longer-term consequences. As they were relaxing at Micah's house, with his blessing, of course, they met Micah's young private priest and noticed that he had a different but recognizable accent from Micah and from those who lived in the hills of Ephraim. And they wondered what he was doing here. Now, I think it's pretty interesting that already dialects and discernible accents had developed within Israel. I mean, most rabbis think that since it's not recorded, they probably did not ask the Levite his name because they already knew him. And this was because the young Levite had probably stopped for a while in either Sorah or Eshtaol, and he was known well enough from his voice to be recognizable. Now they were a little surprised to find him at Micah's. And so they asked Micah's new priest three questions. First, what brought you to this place? Second, what do you do here? And third, what have you here? In other words, what's your circumstance? What do you possess? Now these are very reasonable questions that would come up in normal conversation. So the Levite says that Micah hired him pays him a wage, and so he acts as Micah's priest. And these Danites, you see, have reverted to the typical superstitions of the pagans and their past days in Egypt. And so they asked the Levite, well, then divine the future for us and tell us how our scouting expedition is going to turn out. The priest tells them exactly what they want to hear, that the Lord will be with them. Right. 
as though this fellow had contact with God or that God would give him a vision of Dan's future. Well, everything was quite satisfactory and normal. They stayed probably just overnight and then fed and rested. They continued their northward journey until they arrived at a place called Laish. Right? The Lebanese border today is right up here. Okay, So they were right in this area. Now, Laish was a tranquil city full of content and peaceful people, we're told. The residents probably were originally uh, citizens of Sidon, all right, who moved out for some reason. Um, Sidon, you see, up here a little bit north. And they moved out probably not unlike folks in the U.S. that took covered wagons westward for adventure and a better life. The comment that no one in the land was exercising authority over them that would bring them to shame simply meant that apparently they weren't on some king or potentate's land as his guests. Rather, they were a fully independent colony. There was no external power to rule over them. Now recall, give you an example of this, how Jacob had settled down outside the walls of Shechem. In full agreement with the king of Shechem, but still, for him, it was precarious because that king could change the terms of their agreement or tell them to move on any time he wanted to because it was his land. To have to bow down to such a king could bring shame and humiliation and thus the meaning of that phrase. The people of Dan had an entirely opposite circumstance up in Laish. Now, although they were apparently from Sidon, the people of Laish didn't have an alliance with Sidon, nor were they considered an official outpost of Sidon. Thus, even if the nation of Sidon had some sympathy and attachment to these people of Laish, they were so far away as to be a non-factor and unable to protect or rescue them if needed. This was the perfect setup for Dan. Okay? The location was well-watered, fertile, substantial in size and far from anyone who might try to rule over the place. Now, I've taken many of you to this very spot. All right? And it is gorgeous. It's right at the headwaters of one of the several sources of the Jordan River. We've hiked along its banks, all right? lunched under the shade of its many trees. The scouts from Dan must have thought they'd found paradise. And all the people of Dan had to do was attack and take it from an unsuspecting and unprepared people who seemed to have no allies to help them. So when they returned to their cities of Zorah and Eshtol, the five scouts reported with great excitement what they had found and urged the leadership to move on Laish at once. Now, like Mika thought when the Levite agreed to be his personal family priest, the scouts of Dan assumed that the God of Israel had led them to Laish and arranged for its taking from a people who would offer little resistance. And like Micha, the scouts were acting mainly on superstition and not on godly principle. It was the oracle of prophecy 
from this same Levite telling their scouts that their mission would be blessed by God and be successful that caused them to have this false assumption. Well, verse 11 describes the strike force that the men of Dan assembled and went to Laish with, and it was actually very modest in size, only about 600 soldiers. Now, this tells us how little regard Dan had for the military capabilities of the people of Laish. Now, by the way, this was not the total size of Dan. It was only the amount of men who would be used to both guard the column of Danite migrants and to attack the city. Accompanied by their women and children, the column of Danite migrants went north. They stopped at a place in the territory of Judah called Kiryat Yarim, which they subsequently called Machanadan, which simply means the camp of Dan. And from there they went along a path that took them up into the hills of Ephraim and right by Mika's house on their way up. But hospitality was not what they were necessarily seeking this time. The five men, of course, intentionally brought the camp of Dan along this particular route because of what they had seen and heard from Mika and that Levite in his employ. So the five scouts talked among themselves and decided that since Dan was going to need gods and images to worship at their new home in Laish and a priest to preside over it all, why not simply take what was easily available? It's interesting that in addition to the silver graven image of Yehovah in Mika's house, there were also teraphim. Teraphim, teraphim were other household gods that served all kinds of purposes, including acting much like the Urim and Tumim. Right? They gave yes or no answers to questions directed at God, or in this case, the gods. Teraphim were strictly pagan items, outlawed by the law of Moses. But Micah and the Levite priest used them as part of their worship. Also notice that the term houses in verse 14 is used instead of the singular house. See, the Hebrew word bait, uh, the Hebrew word used is bait, and it is written in the plural masculine syntax that means there was more than one house there. Okay. This meant that the Beit Elohim, this private sanctuary belonging to Mekah, was a separate building. Okay. This was a very well-to-do family then. And, and that undoubtedly had something to do with the Danite scouts' rationalization of what they had in mind to steal from them. But here we again see a demonstration of these Israelite tribes having so quickly gone off the reservation. As I asked you in our last lesson, do you think that any of the players in this story thought of themselves as purposefully doing something against Jehovah, God of Israel? Do you think that they thought of themselves as intentionally doing something wicked in the Lord's eyes, but did it anyway? 
not a chance. All the characters mentioned here were simply following commonly held doctrines and practices that everybody did. And no one questioned. Not even apparently Israel's priesthood. They didn't bother to check with scripture. And I suspect that's because they either firmly believed that what they were doing would be found in it as authorized or they preferred to remain ignorant. Not have to deal with having to justify their wrong thinking and actions with the truth. I wish I had a dime for every Christian that told me that the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Or that God instructed Israel to kill all the Canaanites. Or that drinking wine is prohibited. Or that being in debt is sin. Or that the Jews were required to ritually wash before eating. I could go on and on and on. But in fact, the Bible says no such things. These are just long-held, erroneous beliefs that are so embedded in Christian and in some cases Jewish culture that I, I don't know that short of Jesus returning that they're ever going to be wrung out. We live our lives, usually, by imitating those who we consider righteous or pious. Or those who ought to know. The professionals. And we just assume that what we're thinking or doing is divine truth. Let me tell you something. Mika, his young Levite, and those leaders of Dan weren't given any slack by Yehovah just because it seems they didn't know any better than to act as they did. They were given a means by the Lord to know better. They were given the Torah, but they weren't interested in inquiring of it. I can't tell you that I know all the possible divine consequences for a modern Christian who has the means to find out the truth at his fingertips with no danger of persecution for it, Practically no cost whatsoever to be taught, but much prefers not to. And would rather rely on traditions and customs and what other people tell them. But I am certain that there is an eternal cost, as well as an earthly cost. And perhaps we should face that and do something about it, especially considering the signs of our times. I mean, the imminence of the end of days and our standing before the Lord with our lives laid bare is awfully near. We're going to continue with this chapter next week.